Good morning. My name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central, and I have the privilege to bring God's Word to you, uh, His people. Uh, as is our tradition, I ask that you would stand as we read His Word. We're continuing in our series, uh, The Songs of the Heart, from the book of Psalms. We're in Psalms uh, chapter 8 this morning, so this is God's Word. O Lord, our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? that you are mindful of him, and the son of man, that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The prophet Isaiah says that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, and we need once again to hear from you. Would you speak to us through your mighty word? Would you prepare us to encounter you, the living God? And would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that understand? In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I want to begin this morning by inviting you into my living room for a little bit. Uh, and then I'll make a few observations about how crazy it is. Um, I have two children, one almost three-year-old daughter named Ava Grace and a 14-month-old son named Hunter, and, and one on the way because my wife and I love changing diapers. We just can't get enough, so I figured we'd do that again. Um, and I, I want to preface by saying my kids really do love each other. They do. I'm not just saying that, but they're kids. Uh, so, you know, at times they treat each other badly. Some of you guys who are parents can relate to that. Uh, and even at times, my daughter, Ava Grace, she will knock down Hunter uh, when he's aggravating her. Sometimes he deserves it. Um, not really the point, but so she will knock him down. And, and so I was thinking about this. This is what typically happens uh, whenever this plays out. And I, as I was chewing on it this week, I realized how crazy it is. Um, so, so bear with me. Uh, so when this happens, what normally happens is either my wife or I will discipline Ava Grace, and then we will say this phrase um, that we all say, but it's a little bit strange. We'll say, Ava Grace, I want you to tell him, tell Hunter, that you're sorry. And I've been chewing on that. I've, I'm just a little bit baffled by that, and it, it's kind of strange on multiple levels. First, first level that's strange is that Hunter is 14 months old. He has no idea what I'm sorry means. So he's, he's obviously not getting anything out of this apology, but we ask her to do it anyway. But even on a deeper level, it's strange because 
really the intended outcome in me asking Ava Grace to do that almost never actually happens. Uh, you see, Ava Grace will normally oblige us, and she will say the words to Hunter, I'm sorry, but that's not really my intended desire. Uh, what I really want for Ava Grace is that she would feel this deep remorse that she would be extremely upset by what she's done, and that she would then bring that remorse to Hunter with this heartfelt apology. That's what we want as parents, right? We want that authentic uh, remorse and sadness. And if that, if that is my desire, I wonder why I don't say it this way. I wonder why I don't say, Ava Grace, you need to feel sorry. And then once you have adequately felt that sorrow, I then want you to approach Hunter with that genuine remorse, and bring him that heartfelt apology. You know, why, why don't we say that to our children? Well, it's a little bit verbose, obviously, but on the, other, the other reason we don't do this is because we realize we can't command feelings, right? We cannot command someone to feel. Or can we? I want you to hold that thought as we enter into our text this morning Dr. Mark Futado, he's an Old Testament scholar, he's written much on the book of Psalms, says this. He says, you can sum up the book of Psalms in one phrase. That phrase is, praise the Lord. That's the essence of all 150 Psalms, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And so what, what he's saying there is that the Psalms themselves exist as a command to us to praise the Lord. But the tricky thing is in that command is it's not simply that God is commanding us to say the words, praise the Lord, kind of like I command David Grace to say, I'm sorry. See, God is actually commanding us to do it. Not just say it, but to from the heart praise Him. God is commanding us to feel which is kind of strange in what we just talked about, how the craziness of my living room, we can't do that, but for some reason, God feels the right to command us to feel. So how does he do that? How does God command us to feel? And I think the answer is that the proof is in the pudding, if you're familiar with that phrase. You see, the book of Psalms, that which commands us to praise the Lord is the very same thing that the Holy Spirit uses to inspire us, to motivate us, to encourage us to do just that, to praise the Lord from the heart. And so our text this morning might be, it might be the most glorious expression of this idea, of a psalm that both commands and empowers us to praise the Lord. Which is good news, isn't it? It's good, it's good news for me, because if I'm honest, I so often struggle to praise the Lord from the heart. You mean the pastor too? Even me? Yeah, even I struggle to praise God from my heart. And so it's good news for me and you. I, I'm saying that because I'm just as hungry as you are to come to that place where I can authentically, genuinely praise God from my heart. And the reason that this is so important is because for those of us who've ever experienced that, that heartfelt worship, you know that when that happens, everything that we are called to as Christians just flows out of us. Obedience becomes 
second nature, when we've gripped and tasted God's goodness and are celebrating Him in worship. And so that's my hope for you guys and for myself, is that through this text this morning, we might be compelled to praise the Lord from the heart. Maybe for the 1,000th time, or maybe some of you for the very first time. But that's my hope and prayer as we dive in. And if you're hungry for that, would you walk through this text with me? Now, there's two topics that the psalmist engages in in this psalm. The first is the majesty of the Creator, and the second is the majesty of His creation. The majesty of the Creator and the majesty of His creation. So let's begin by first looking at the majesty of of the Creator. Look at, our ver- look at our text here. It begins with the phrase, O Lord, our Lord. Sounds a little redundant, doesn't it? But when we look at the Hebrew, what we're seeing is that the two titles here are actually very different, although we translate them the same way. The first Lord is God's personal name, Yahweh. Okay? And then the second Lord is His office. So the word would be Adonai, and that's referring to God's position as sovereign ruler over all things. And so what the psalmist is actually saying here, he's saying, O God, personal name, our King. O God, our King. And then he goes on to say, How majestic is your name in all the earth. The word majesty that is used here, it it continues with that royal theme. It is fit only for a great king. And so the psalmist is is right off the bat highlighting God's immeasurable power and dominion over everything. He is the King of Kings. And yet the psalmist continues from that. He says, you have set your glory above the heavens. He's pointing out here that God's glory and majesty is beyond comprehension. It's higher than the heavens. He's saying that we as humans cannot even see how great He is. When we look up, it goes beyond what we can see. So again, to summarize, we see that God, our God, is the King of kings over everything. Yet on some level, we as humans realize we will never fully understand. We will never fully grasp how majestic He is. It's unfathomable, His glory. And then we come to verse 2. It's kind of confusing. It says, Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength, because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. And in order to understand this passage, we have to think militaristically. Uh, You see, when a ruler would, would be facing a powerful enemy, he would obviously send out his best warriors. He'd send out the best of the best to overcome that enemy. But what the psalmist is saying is that our God is so strong, when he faces a great enemy, he sends out the babies to sing praises. The point that he's making here is that there is no match for our God. There's no, nothing that even comes close to comparing to his power. So what a powerful argument that we've seen here in the first two verses of the splendor and majesty of our God. So what? Why does it matter that God is so majestic? Why does it matter that he is so powerful Why is the psalmist so intent upon reminding us of these truths? My grandfather, uh, who is now deceased, was a very expressive man. When he was moved by something, he lets you know. And I have this vivid memory as a child. I was 
uh, at the Broadway play uh, Hello Dolly uh, with my grandfather. Um, and we're, we're coming to this famous scene, if you, for those of you who've seen it, where Dolly is returning to the Harmonia Gardens restaurant. And it's this powerful scene. I could sing it for you, but I'm going to spare you. Um, but it's this, it's this beautiful uh, Broadway number. And at the end of the scene, my grandfather jumps out of his seat and he starts screaming, Bravo! Bravo! Encore! Encore! And if I'm, to be honest, I was so embarrassed. I wanted to crawl into a hole and die. I was like, what are you doing? And everyone else is just sitting there clapping, but he is shouting, bravo! And the reality is that he couldn't help it. That's just who he was. You see, when, when he saw something beautiful, when he saw something perfect like that, he couldn't help it. It motivated him. It filled him with emotion, and he couldn't help but cry out, bravo. The psalmist here is grabbing us by the collar and he's saying, look, do you see it? Do you see how majestic he is? Because if you really see it, you will not be able to resist crying out, bravo, how awesome and majestic is our God. But the unfortunate reality is that many of us have become so numb, haven't we? We know intellectually that God is the ruler of all, that He is sovereign and powerful and mighty, that His majesty is beyond compare, and yet our hearts have ceased to stand in awe of these truths. I don't know if you can relate to that. We read over passages like this and it just goes in one ear and out the other. Brothers and sisters, I charge you this morning to look again. Look again at the majesty of our great King. And don't settle for apathy in response to such greatness. And I, and I ask, Lord, would you allow us to see it? God, help us to see the majesty that David describes here so beautifully. And would we be compelled to come out of our seats and shout, Bravo! Praise the Lord. The psalmist isn't even finished yet. He, he's really only begun, and now he enters into verse 3, the second part of his sermon, the majesty of God's creation. Look at verse 3 with me. This is the turning point in our text. It says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Have you ever gone out in the country beyond the city lights and just laid in a field and simply just looked up at the stars? It's absolutely breathtaking. And if you ever get a chance to do that, if you've never done that before, something normally happens. What happens when we do that and when we meditate on the God who created all of it the result is, what happens here in verse 4, you feel incredibly small, don't you? When you see the, the greatness, the magnitude of God's creation. And so David does that. You can almost picture him as a little shepherd boy, kind of reflecting here out in the field. He's looking up at the sky, and he sees the magnitude of God's creation. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Basically, what he's saying here is, 
God, what is the human race to you? And who are we that you would care for us? It's a great question. It makes no sense to David that, that a God so majestic would care about little old us. And what follows in the next four verses, verses is absolutely phenomenal. David begins with the word yet, because David is acknowledging, it makes no sense that you would care for me, but in some strange and mysterious and glorious way you do. And that's what follows here. Verse 5, you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You gave him dominion over the works of your hands. Do you see the parallel here? In verse 1 and 2, we've observed and stood in awe of the majesty of God's power and of his kingly greatness. And now in verse, God, verse 5, God is pouring out that very same power and rule and dominion onto us. What we have just celebrated and worshipped and stood in awe of, He is handing that to us, His creation. There's a coronation going on here. God is crowning us with His glory. And He's putting all of His creation underneath our authority. The king of kings has made you a prince or a princess. That's how this majestic God feels about you. Brothers and sisters, hear me now. Our deepest longing is to be known and cherished and adored and celebrated, isn't it? It's what we really want. We want to know that somebody really likes us. But not just anybody. We want someone of status, someone that we respect and admire to cherish us. I want to share a little of my own journey here uh, with you. In my own journey to know myself, I've come to realize how I've been struggling most of my life to believe that I am worthy of love and adoration. Um, and part of that is wrapped up in the fact uh, that my own dad grew up without a father, and therefore, he never received love and affection from his own dad. And as a result, he struggled to communicate that love and affection to me. He struggled to celebrate me. And so in turn, I have struggled much of my life to believe that I am worthy of affection, uh, of being celebrated. I don't know if anybody can relate to that. Um, but if that's your story, I'm really sorry. Uh, it's, it's really sad. Um, a few weeks ago, Daniel and I went to a pastoral development intensive, and during one of the sessions of this intensive, this brokenness of mine kind of reared its ugly head, the reality that I feel unworthy of love and of being celebrated. And what happened is the, the leader of the session, when he saw this, he stopped the whole, the whole group and demanded that we have a Timothy parade. I'm not making this up. This actually happened, okay? So he and another man hoisted me on their shoulders and paraded me around the room chanting, Timothy, Timothy, Timothy. I'm not, just, I'm not making that up. It actually happened. And, and the reality is I both loved it and hated it. Do you get that? I hated it because I feel so unworthy of being celebrated. And yet I loved it because for once I was being celebrated. I was being cherished and admired. Brothers and sisters, your heavenly Father adores you. 
He has crowned you with His glory. He delights in you. He celebrates you. He longs to parade you around the room, chanting your name. For those of us who struggle to believe that, you need to hear that this morning. That's good news. He really likes you. And if you're not a Christian, I challenge you to ponder that this morning. Ponder the truth that the one who created you wants to celebrate you. Would you consider entering into that relationship with him and allowing him to do just that? I want us to take one final look at this psalm, but in a different context. You see, like many of the psalms, uh, this, song is, this psalm is quoted over and over again in the New Testament. And it's New Testament context, we see uh, how this whole God's delighting in us thing is possible. So here now, Psalm 8, as referenced in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, says, It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now he... Uh, the author continues, Now in putting everything in subjection to Him, Christ, He left nothing outside His control. At present we do not see everything in subjection to Christ, but we see Him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. What the author of Hebrews is highlighting from this song, this psalm, is that the crown of glory that we now wear was extremely costly. How mindful is God of you? How much does he care for you? Enough to send His own Son to the cross. To allow His Son to receive a different crown, the crown of thorns, so that we might receive that crown of glory. How much does He care for us? That's the message that's embedded in Psalm 8 that is celebrated over and over again in the New Testament. How majestic is our God that He would, at such great cost to Himself, bestow upon us such great majesty? Are you tasting the pudding? Are you beginning to experience how this psalm, which commands us to praise the Lord, is the fuel by which we do the praising? In a moment, we're going to close with a classic hymn, one of my favorites. It's said to be a paraphrase of this beautiful psalm. It's called, How Great Thou Art. And there's that poignant line in the chorus that I'm sure you guys are familiar with that I believe is the end goal of our text this morning. It's the line, Then sings my soul. That's God's command and desire. That our soul would sing to Him. That our inmost being would praise Him. And it's through these, the Scriptures, it's through this service, it's through His gracious love towards us that the Holy Spirit empowers us to do that. For our soul to sing out. And that's my sincere hope for us, Christ Central. Each week as we open the Psalms, 
that we would observe God's majesty once more and that our slumbering hearts would arise and that we would sing out from the heart so that we could in one accord proclaim, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I just confess that it's so hard at times for me to praise you from the heart. I don't have the ability in and of myself. I need you to awaken my heart. I need you to speak to me through your word and remind me, point me again to your majesty. The majesty of you, the creator God, and the majesty that you pour out on me, your beloved son. And would those truths not go in one ear and out the other, but would they settle on my heart? Would your Holy Spirit use them to awaken me so that I might praise you, that we might praise you, and that in that worship we would walk in obedience because it's just natural, because it's who we are. Father, I ask that you would do that for myself and for this congregation. You stir up authentic heart worship in each of us. In Jesus' name, amen.